It's Monday, December 12th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. While I would certainly despair over the actual violent overthrow of the German government, I would, what is the opposite of despair? Well, let's just say I'm quite enraptured by almost every detail of the attempted overthrow of the German government. Police in Germany made arrests of far-right members of a group armed with guns and swords led by an avowed royal broadcaster DW has more. Heinrich Reuss, a descendant of an aristocratic family from eastern Germany who still uses the symbolic title of Prince Heinrich XIII. The entrepreneur from Frankfurt is said to be the ringleader. I don't know about ringleader, more like carnival ringmaster, or in German, Zirkesdirektor. Prince Heinrich XIII, pay close attention, almost everyone in the story is named Prince Heinrich, was arrested at his hunting lodge in Bad Lobenstein. No good comes of Bad Lobenstein hunting lodges, I always say. There were 30 locations that were raided, ranging from the Austrian ski resort of Kitzbühel and various military barracks in Germany. Among the arrested, a former member of parliament, a tenor, and a celebrity chef whose daughter is dating a famous footballer, David Alba. The chef was reported to have provided material support in the form of, quote, money, a camper van, an emergency generator, and cooking utensils. A word about Bad Lobenstein from the New York Times coverage. Bad Lobenstein is home to 6,000 people, and some say it feels more like a village than a town. I don't know. Maybe less of a village, more of a town, something of an enclave, between a hamlet and a burg, let's say. I do not understand those distinctions, but Bad Lobenstein didn't understand that they had a prince living there until about a year ago. Heinrich XIII, who looks a lot like Bernie Madoff, by the way, and his Reichsberger brethren began distributing letters, actual mailed letters, replete with excessive exclamation marks and capitalization. They tried to rouse a populist uprising. It didn't really rally the Volk, but there was a frightening number of military and police personnel who bought in, as well as the young Russian girlfriend of a diplomat identified in charging documents only as Vitalia B. Prince Heinrich XIII's own family disapproved. One member told local broadcaster MDR, quote, I fear that Prince Heinrich XIII is now caught up in conspiracy theory misconceptions, a confused old man. That quote from family member Heinrich XIV. Like I said, everyone in this story is named Heinrich. Heinrich XIV there distancing himself from Heinrich XIII, but hoping, of course, to retain the good name of his side of the family, which is mostly imaginary princes with no claim to the throne who don't want to also overthrow the government. While many of the elements of this plot are, ooh, let's say, florid, it wasn't a joke. Here is Peter Frank, the German federal prosecutor, just after the arrest, speaking through a translator. The arrested suspects believe in conspiracy myths consisting of different narratives from the Reichsburger ideology as well as the QAnon ideology. Heinrich XIII and his Klatsch we're all working the anti-Semitic QAnon channels available to all manner of kooks from around the world. And they were armed with guns, but also swords and cooking utensils. On the show today, Joe Biden, Brittany Griner, and the concept of weakness. That's the spiel. But first, the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth, New York Times correspondent Elizabeth Williamson has been covering the Alex Jones trials since their beginning. We mark the 10th anniversary of the shooting. That would be December 14th, 
So Elizabeth is on to talk about covering the story, what Alex Jones's philosophy or tactics were, and what are the chances that victims actually see recompense. Elizabeth Williamson, up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. In successive trials, Alex Jones was found to have lied, caused harm, and defamed the families of Sandy Hook. In Texas, the findings were that he pay $4 million in compensatory damages and $45 million in punitive damages. A little later, there was a trial in Connecticut, and those damages amounted to a billion dollars added to that $473 million in fees. The InfoWars founder is now declaring bankruptcy after he took his company into bankruptcy, which brings up very real questions about will these families ever see money? Elizabeth Williamson has been covering these trials, has been covering Alex Jones, has been covering the families. It's all there in her book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. She's a reporter for the New York Times who's worked for the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post. Liz, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, Mike. Good to be with you. So you were at both of the trials that took place so far? I was, yes. The one in Austin in the summer and then in Waterbury, Connecticut in September and October. Contrast Alex Jones's behavior in each. I think in Austin, he felt like he had a kind of home field advantage. Um, that's where his business is based. Um, he was not nearly as combative as he was in Connecticut. He also showed up. Um, and I think after he had a 90 minute um, session in which quite by accident, Scarlett Lewis, whose son Jesse Lewis died at Sandy Hook, was on the stand, hadn't finished her testimony. After the lunch break, Alex Jones came in expecting to do his testimony, um, but she was still on the stand. And so that gave her an opportunity to sort of talk directly to him for about 90 minutes. So the answer to every question was directed at him. Um, he was squirming, sweating through his shirt, really nervous. Um, uh, trying to avoid her gaze, but she just kind of pinned him to his chair. And I think going into the trial in Connecticut, he was determined not to have that 
situation repeat itself. So he barely showed up. Um, he spent um, an hour plus testifying. It was extremely combative. He it, chaos kind of erupted. He said, I'm done apologizing with all the families kind of weeping in the gallery. Um, he was supposed to come back and never did. So it was a really, um, even for Alex Jones, who tends to be self-defeating in these settings um, because he can't stop talking even to save himself. Um, it was an unusually self-defeating performance in Connecticut. What was his strategy, do you think? I looked at what he was doing and I said, okay, on the one hand, maybe he thinks that he has to keep portraying the persona of the Infowars show. And even if he's asked to pay some money, that's his bread and butter. And so he'll either raise more money uh, from sympathetic listeners or be able to you know, have a successful business without ever breaking character. That was one consideration. Maybe he's just unable not to do that. Maybe he thought that, maybe he didn't, or his lawyers didn't think that there would be this uh, verdict against him and his actual First Amendment arguments would succeed. I was trying to figure out why he acted like he did. What do you think? You know, I think in Connecticut, he had this sense, um, and he has always said that he felt these lawsuits, first of all, he has no remorse over what he did. You know, he does not see himself as having wounded these families. He just doesn't have the kind of psychosocial bandwidth to go there. Um, so I think, you know, what he was seeing, and he has said this from the beginning, that this was some kind of a plot by Democratic elites to silence him, to shut down Infowars. And I think that really kind of came to its apotheosis in Connecticut, because you have... Um, you know, that was where the crime took place. You have um, the senator of um, of Connecticut's son was working on the team for the plaintiffs. Um, so he was in the courtroom. Um, some of these parents who were there were that was the families of uh, eight victims who were suing him in Connecticut. So they were all in the room. Some of them have been very active in the gun policy debate, which, as we all know, he had characterized, you know, the shooting or denied Sandy Hook as a government false flag in service of gun control. So I think what he was doing was portraying this, not, not only the trial, but the verdict as well, as this effort to destroy Infowars, plow it under, and salt the earth. Right, right. But before, I guess what I'm stuck on is up until that point in his life or maybe the Texas trial, that was actually a good business decision. It was a lie. It was divorced from reality. But there was a business logic to it. There was a um, a, a logic that it was in his self-interest to deny the shooting, to act as if it's all a plot, to just go full bore into the conspiracies. He was rewarded by advertising dollars and followers. Did he fail to realize the dynamic had changed? Did he fail to realize that he really could be forced to lose more than he gained by doing this? Or was he just unable to stop himself? So I think the answer to that has sort of two components. First of all, um, what he, the way he's conducted himself in this trial has been a winning strategy in terms of viewers and listeners and uh, sales. So his sales after the verdict in, in Texas were surging. They were up something like 60%, according to his filings in court. Um, you know, he, he has managed to successfully portray himself as exactly what I earlier described. But in terms of his conduct before a jury, 
you know, it, it's hard to what's so been so interesting in these trials is the first time, you know, a lot of these jurors, they just aren't that familiar with him and they haven't spent a heck of a lot of time watching InfoWars. And you can just see the looks on their faces the first time they see these false claims about Sandy Hook on his show shown to them in court. You know, they're kind of appalled by this and they can't believe that it's really real that this guy is actually making these claims and he's doing it so vociferously and he's attacking the families in the way that he is on his show. And then he shows up in court and it's even worse. So yeah, that, I don't think he had a strategy going in. I think in Connecticut in particular, he just lost his cool. He creates his own reality bubble and maybe it's hard for him to recognize just how outside that bubble the average person, the average juror is. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think especially in the Texas case, he had some idea that he was going to convince some members of the jury that he was definitely being attacked. He kept trying to say that he had only talked about this very little, but because in the run-up to trial, he never surrendered full records of, you know, how many times he actually did talk about it. He didn't give them financial records. He didn't offer audience reports. So nobody really has any idea how many times he's actually spoken about Sandy Hook and spread these lies on his show. But he kept trying to say, I didn't do it a lot. You know, I'm being pilloried for, you know, a total of 27 minutes of, you know, false claims. And, you know, that doesn't wash at the New York Times. You know, if you make a libelous claim, um, it doesn't matter if it's five words or, or you know, five days in a row. He, it was a kind of incoherent strategy. Well, that was also him uh, erecting a strategy bubble around, say, the truths of libel or the truths of slander. Mm-hmm. Not that it mm-hmm. matters. He wasn't making a legal argument. Yeah. There was one other thing I want to hone in on, though. I thought it might be possible. This is a guy who makes a lot of money, tens of millions of dollars a year in his company, you know, maybe makes close to $100 million over a couple of years. He lost the verdict for four and a half million in Texas. And then he lost a a damage award of 49 million. But, and you've been reporting on this. Originally, I think that there is a Texas statute that would cap that, but then the judge blew past that statute. Could you just, first of all, to lay the foundation for the facts, could you just take me through the details of that? Yeah, sure. So um, as you just said, you know, $4 million in um, compensatory damages, 45 in punitive damages. Texas law actually caps punitive damages at $750,000 per plaintiff. Now, two weeks ago, the judge in a hearing about, you know, the, the damages and ready, you know, to, re- to sort of record, register um, the judgment, made the, made the observation that when the Texas legislature passed that law in the mid-90s, there was even some debate as among the legislators themselves that this might be unconstitutional, that capping punitive damages in this way might not make it through the courts. And so she cited that. She also said her job, you know, which can be forgotten when people get swept up in these political cases, was to uphold the Constitution. She felt like the jury had spoken and that this statute was an attempt to override the justice system. And so she said, I'm entering the full judgment. And if it's if it's challenged, which it almost certainly will be by Infowars, um, I'm so be it. Um, so this this is kind of a precedent setting thing in that way, because, you know, she's just saying 
no, I just don't think that 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 law is, is correct and fair and it silences the jury. And so I'm giving these family, this family uh, the full $49 million. Yeah, well, maybe it doesn't pay to call the judge uh, engulfed in hellfire and a liar if she has the ability to do that. But here's my- and a pedophile. Yeah, pedophile too. Uh, here's my possible explanation. Again, I might be applying the laws of logic and strategy to Alex Jones at my peril, but- Always dangerous. Yeah, uh, he comes out of Texas. He says to himself- all right, I lost uh, four and a half million in compensatory damages. My own lawyer is publicly saying, and he's citing the law, that the damage cap for the punitive damages will probably be around 10% of the 45 million. So I lost $9 million. I could live with that. I could even maybe even generate that much by my aggrieved listeners rallying around me. So it doesn't change his strategy when he goes to Connecticut and boom, he loses over a billion dollars. Might that have been going on? Or do you think people on his legal team were telling him that the uh, vulnerability, the exposure was much greater in Connecticut. I think they were. I think they were telling him him that. You know, his lawyer Norm Pattis um, is a controversial figure in his own right, and actually tried to get himself removed from the case because he is a controversial figure, and he, you know, argued that it would affect Jones's ability to get a fair trial. Um, I. It's really hard for me to know what. Alex Jones's lawyers say, but there are a few clues. And one of them came in Texas when I talked to his lawyer saying, will Jones be testifying? And, you know, he ultimately did, but the lawyer said, it's up to Alex. And then he added, everything's up to Alex. And so I think that what's happening is that Alex is hiring lawyers, but he basically runs his own defense because he doesn't really listen to anyone. So they could brief him and prep him all they want, but he's going to say what he's going to say. He's used to having a forum to himself. He's used to holding forth, um, which is why he chose to defend himself mostly on the courthouse steps outside the room itself. But um, but once inside the room, he was, you know, he was marching to his own beat. This summer, Infowars' parent company, Free Speech Systems, filed for bankruptcy. Now he's filed for personal bankruptcy. What do the experts that you talk to say that will do to his ability to shield himself from having to pay all or some of these damages? Well, what it does do is it it absolutely delays the, the process of these families getting any kind of recompense from him. Um, they are now going to be forced to stand in line with other creditors who include other, you know, um, individuals and vendors, um, you know, people who have won lawsuits um, and or have settled with him um, that so it will delay that. Um, it probably forces some kind of talks which are, you know, beginning to be underway over a settlement of some kind that would avoid this you know, dragging on a couple different tracks through the appeals process. Um, but it also does an important thing, and that's that it opens his personal finances to some scrutiny because the families accuse him of siphoning, beginning when the cases were filed in mid-2018, the families are saying that he's been siphoning tens of millions of dollars out of the business, either personally, through expenditures, or through contracts that he's making with cronies of his to supply things like fulfillment services. And he's stashing that money somewhere else. So the bankruptcy court, in theory, 
would be forcing an additional level of transparency over where that money is. Because if you add up everything that you know we know about, it doesn't tot up to what there should be if you have a business like InfoWars that's bringing down 50 to $70 million in revenues annually. Yeah. And he has one of his creditors uh, are his parents and himself, this other company that he apparently has started giving money to that's not allowed and they can they could sniff that out and get that money to the um the victims in this case you're saying yeah there is a there is a justice department trustee overseeing this case um and there is a lawyer that's been hired by the trustee that is examining some of these claims um and there will be some reports coming about whether or not that that debt that he claims he owes 54 million to another LLC a limited liability company um which is controlled by himself and his parents he's saying that that's what made him bankrupt that he owes them 50 more 54 million dollars that that claim is highly suspect um that has been questioned in court including um, at least glancingly by the judge. And I think that the trustee and the trustee's attorneys will be weighing in on that pretty soon. Will this shut down InfoWars? I would like to be, you know, positive or, well, I guess it depends on where you sit. Is it positive or negative to shut down InfoWars? But um, I kind of doubt it. I just don't see Alex Jones being silenced. And I think if Infowars were to be liquidated, for example, to satisfy these judgments, I think like a mushroom, he would pop up someplace else, you know, whether it's through another company or, you know, um, through another outlet or with it with a new company that he creates. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's an asset. It has value. I suppose some of its value is in its brand. So if he sells it, he's, there are other guys on the network who say essentially the same things that he does. But are there any, I know Gawker was shut down and sold for parts or at least got resurrected again. Sometimes this happens when a media company is in the middle of losing a judgment. Are there any First Amendment concerns, you know, stifling the free speech such as it is of someone to pay a bill? Well, I think, you know, because he's in bankruptcy court, the free speech consideration seems to be secondary. What the bankruptcy court is concerned with is preserving a business that does employ about 100 plus people. Um, And so the idea there is what happens if InfoWars continues to operate, for example, bring in these revenues and the families get that and to, you know, that some of that money or all of it goes to satisfy the judgments. that puts them in the InfoWars business, you know, that puts them in the supplement sale business. Um, do they want that? And I think, you know, these are the things that they're weighing. It's one thing to claim money that he earned by maligning them and by harming them, but to make claim to money that he will earn by maligning and harming others is something that, as you can imagine, is extremely unsavory for the Sandy Hook families because. Their, their whole goal was to point out um, the harm that this kind of disinformation is doing in a global sense. So they don't really want to go into business with Jones. So where does that leave them? And I think that's what's being discussed. Yeah. 20 children, six educators were murdered in Sandy Hook. How many of those families have been party to one of the lawsuits that has already been decided? 
the families of 10 victims are in lo- um, involved in these lawsuits. So in the Connecticut cases, there are two of them. Um, Neil Haslin and Scarlett Lewis, the parents of Jesse Lewis, are one. Uh, Lenny Posner and Veronique De La Rosa, who are the parents of Noah Posner, um, is the other in Texas. And then there are eight more uh, victims' families, plus an FBI agent who is implicated in these lies um, who sued in Connecticut. So 10 uh, victims' families altogether. What are the other families doing, if anything, or will they be compensated in any way? Uh, They all, I believe, had an opportunity to join one or more of these cases or to file their own. Um, You know, if there's anything I've learned in working on my book in particular uh, about the Sandy Hook families is that the only thing that they have, all of them in common, is this horrible event that they lived through and and the loss that they share. And uh, they have very different opinions about, you know, and and even the the individuals who did sue um, have had different opinions about how do you handle these kinds of campaigns of online abuse? Do you don't feed the trolls and hope they go away? Do you engage with them as Lenny Posner did and make it your life's work to rescue these um, victims' legacy from the, these campaigns of disinformation? Um, or do you just not just refuse to engage in it at all and maybe speak out publicly about it as some parents have done without joining the lawsuit? I don't think that the families that did not sue um, have spoken out at all about whether or not, you know, they should receive any kind of compensation or anything like that. I'm not aware of anything like that at all. Elizabeth Williamson is a feature writer in the New York Times Washington Bureau and author of the book Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Brittany Griner is back with her family. Victor Boot is back with his, which probably means the FSB and the KGB. Maybe. It's impossible to know. Boot was a bad man. He sold deadly weapons. He had affiliations with Russian intelligence services. Boot was a mercenary and a rogue, but a rogue from a rogue state might actually be precisely aligned with state interests. Now, there's a way to express the necessary ambivalence about gaining back an unfairly detained citizen, as Griner was, while at the same time giving up a dangerous man who was justly imprisoned. That describes Boot. The proper way falls somewhere between the White House's declaration that no one was doing backflips and Representative Adam Kinzinger's declaration that, of course, we're glad that Brittany Griner is back home, but there's always a but, and in this case, the but was the boot. Kinziger did say something that a bunch of his fellow elected officials were echoing. He said the Biden administration showed weakness. Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, called the deal weak and disgusting. Dan Crenshaw, representative from Texas, tweeted America should be negotiating from a place of strength, not weakness. The charge of weakness is the easiest, simplest, most facile allegation to make. And what does it mean? Weakness always gets ascribed to the Democrat by the Republican or by the more combative Republican to the less bellicose one. It's a free-floating pejorative that says something about the style of the person being insulted and then skips to saying something about the result, but doesn't fill in much in between. We don't know 
how the negotiation went. The administration says it was impossible for the U.S. to get back Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner from the Russians. So what's weak? Weak seems to mean that we, the people charging weakness, we would have gotten all of our policy objectives achieved. And also, while we're at it, we, the people saying that you're weak, we would have not had to give anything up. Why? Because weakness? Strength? By the way, Joe Biden has been, and here are some synonyms for not weak, stalwart, clear, resolute, serious, in leading a coalition that wants to supply and has been supplying Russia's enemies with potent arms to drive back and kill Russians. Biden's been leading this coalition. He has not wavered. Now, within his own party, there's a wing that doesn't want to do this. His response is to say to them, too bad. That's not weak. One of the two parties in the United States intimates that it'd be open to stop the supply of arms that kills Putin's men. And that's not the party that Biden leads. There are elements within the right, like Pat Buchanan, Sarah Palin, those types, who actually valorize Putin's shirtless machismo. Weak or strong to them simply means that they will always criticize a Democratic president who has to make tough choices. Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton has called Biden pathetically weak in dealing with Russia and said this of the Griner exchange. Why do we think Vladimir Putin held that Brittany Griner since her such a long term earlier this year because he realized that he could use her as leverage against Joe Biden to get back one of the world's most dangerous men that he could then unleash against the United States and our allies all around the world. We should have never released Victor Boot. It was a dangerous concession of Vladimir Putin and it will set a dangerous precedent going forward. Everyone in the administration understands and internalizes Cotton's concern. They just prioritized their obligation to rescue an American, even if it just is an one American, not two Americans, not every American improperly detained. Cotton, as you heard in the clip, was saying that we never should have released Victor Boot, never, making it sound as if he were serving a life sentence, but he was due to be released in 2029. He served 10 years. He was in prison for actually being tricked into agreeing to sell arms to Colombia's FARC rebel group, which the FARC rebel group was brought into the fold when Colombia itself negotiated a peace treaty. He never sold the arms. It was a verbal agreement. By the way, all the FARC leaders who boot agreed to hypothetically arm but never actually did, all of them agreed to shorter sentences than what Boot actually served. And their sentences were for murder and kidnapping thousands of people. FARC has been delisted by the U.S. as a terrorist organization. It seems to me that extending this kind of mercy on the part of the Colombians, even the United States to some extent, mercy tempered with a semblance of justice and also swallowing your, let us call it childish pride, because I don't want to use the word weak, but also swallowing some of your ego to do what is right and best for your people, that's the opposite of weakness. It shows resolve, character, and I think the strength to stand up to unfair criticism, even from within your own country. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by assistant producer Corey Warris, senior producer Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 
You call me evil, but unfortunately for you, I'm a necessary evil.